This is Jim Hughes with AFIO Now. We are a program of recorded interviews with members uh, of the U.S. intelligence community or those who write about them. Today, I have an amazing uh, guest who has a fascinating story to tell. Her name is Margaret Coker. Uh, Margaret is an investigative uh, journalist. Over the last uh, about 20 years, she has covered uh, stories in 30-plus countries, working primarily for the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. She may even qualify to be an honorary member of our community because shortly after the 9-11 attacks, she was able to talk her way onto a rickety old Soviet helicopter and fly into northern Afghanistan to cover the U.S. liberation of Afghanistan. Most relevant for today's interview, in 2017 and 18, she was the New York Times bureau chief in Baghdad. Margaret, welcome to AFIO Now. Pleased to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Margaret, you have a brand new book out. I've read it and thoroughly enjoyed it. As I told you off camera, I was very impressed by particularly the social and cultural uh, aspects of the book. It's called The Spy Master of Baghdad. What's it about? Yeah, so in, in, um, in my elevator pitch to get my book contract, I basically told people, Look, this is a story about some incredible acts of bravery and wartime espionage. And that's probably, um, if we if we get it adapted for a movie, that's probably all that Netflix will care about. But really what I cared about and what I wanted to write about are some of our allies that have been fighting with us during this forever war, the war on terror, whatever um, whatever you and your, your um, group of colleagues call it now. Because there are, as you know, and people who suit up every day in defense of their own nation, but also on behalf of the same sort of mission, uh, which is um, identifying threats, um, extremist threats, violent extremist threats, and trying to mitigate those threats. And so the spy master of Baghdad is about this spy master, um, a, an Iraqi uh, bureaucrat uh, who has cultivated a very elite team of, of counterterrorism agents and, and officers and, and and their ability to put those officers deep undercover and um, and help to infiltrate the Islamic State and to uh, make Baghdad in Iraq safer because of that. Margaret, what's the historic background? Background: What was going on in uh, Baghdad and Iraq at that time that um, led to these events? Yeah. So for um, for all of your members and, and viewers. I have been going in and out of Iraq uh, since 2003, um, just at the start of the um, the U.S. Uh, U.S. operation to oust Saddam Hussein. I came to the Middle East very accidentally. I'm actually a Russian speaker by trade, um, which is why I could talk my way onto a rickety Soviet um, helicopter um, back in 2001. But um, I moved to the Middle East because, as a ambitious journalist, that's where the news was, and um, and so. There I was landing in Iraq with a lot of background about authoritarianism and one-party states and um, liberation movements, quite frankly. So uh, I've been in and out of Baghdad uh, and all across Iraq going through lots of different iterations of violence, um, extreme violence, um, living through the times when Baghdad was basically the murder capital of the world because of the way in which violent, violence was being weaponized both for political ends within Iraq and also in, in the um, in the war that al-Qaeda and, and other violent extremists were, were using um, Iraq as, as an experiment for. So I go back. Um, 
in 2016, 2017 for the New York Times as the bureau chief. I'd lived through a lot of bloody days. And when I landed for this new assignment, what I realized first off, because of course, uh, journalists like me never live in the green zone. We live outside in the wild. And uh, Baghdad was going, undergoing a renaissance in 2017. It was the first time in all of my um, all of my deployments and all of my assignments in and out that I really felt safe um, in the capital city. And uh, other Iraqis did as well. Families were out enjoying um, enjoying evenings um, at the leisure parks, um, eating ice cream. Um, small business owners were were also investing back in their businesses, which meant that they thought that they were safe. When you put money into a business, you don't think that your windows are going to get blown out by a terror attack. Uh, it felt like there was a whole sea change going on in this great ancient capital, and I wanted to know who had cracked the nut. Of course, the American military did great things in Iraq. They also did terrible things in Iraq. One thing they never failed to do, what they never succeeded in doing, is making Baghdad safe for regular citizens. But someone had. And so I just took that that really, really easy question, or straightforward question, I should say, because it wasn't easy to, to get the answer, um, as to who solved that, that riddle and made Baghdad safe. So... Using um, my years of collected uh, security sources within the Iraqi establishment, um, also within the um, the Western and U.S. Uh, security uh, establishment, I tried to get that that question answered. And for months, I was asking the question without an answer. Nobody actually knew. And finally, I hit upon an Iraqi general who knew, and he was, seems to be about one of about half a dozen people who were uh, read in on this amazing undercover operation that had been underway. And he told me that I needed to go talk to the person who I identify in my book as the spy master of Baghdad. Of course, there are multiple layers of intelligence agencies in Iraq, but uh, Abu Ali al-Basri had figured out um, how to make the capital safe because he had uh, created a legend and inserted one of his officers um, behind enemy lines who was living within a very important uh, Islamic State uh, cell that had been responsible for trying to bomb Iraq through the time of the ground war um, what, that was going on in, in northern Iraq at the time, the ground war against the Islamic State. Um, one of the things that I complimented you on um, during our off-camera conversations was how well you describe um, the difficulties going on in Baghdad at the time, particularly between the Sunni and um, Shia populations. Uh, tell our viewers just a little bit about um, Sadr City and what it was like to live there. Yeah, so first off, let me just say that I am a, a child of military officers. Uh, the military is our family profession. If if we can say that, um, my all of my uncles on both sides of the family, my brother-in-law's, Everyone has served. And so I grew up with the in this atmosphere of of watching movies about World War II and going to visit famous battlefields. You know, I had an appreciation for the kinds of people who were had been partisans working on behalf of, of the allies, if you will, during the Great Wars. And as a reporter um, over since 2001, and even before that, I, I felt like it was my my public service and my public duty to try and explain other cultures to the Americans that I grew up with, people who who cared about our country, but also had an appreciation for um, for what we were doing abroad. And so my time in Iraq was spent largely outside of of um, 
outside of the Washington bubble. You know, I, I can write a lot about uh, policy decisions and policy prescriptions and the impl implementation of those policies. But in large part, um, I'd like to talk about the not so great people of history, um, regular folks like the ones I grew up with. And so I feel like I do have a, an edge about being able to describe foreign cultures to regular Americans who probably can't pronounce the names and definitely won't ever go to Iraq unless they are um, serving members of the military. And so two of my major characters, uh, the Iraqis in, in my book, um, come from Southern City. They come from uh, the wrong side of the tracks. They come from a family that lives close to the poverty line. They are in large part, you know, the, the story of modern Iraq. And for all of the sins that the US government uh, committed in the aftermath of ousting Saddam Hussein in, in Iraq, for all of the people whose lives were ruined, there are actually a lot of people's lives who were made better by it. And that's not to say that I'm a great cheerleader for, for everything the US government has done, but I'm threading throughout my book the story of just these regular Joes, these regular, um, these regular Iraqis whose lives actually were made better and their, and their opportunities opened up for them after 2003. And the family dynamics that everybody lives in, of course, um, to a great extent shapes us, either for better or for worse. And so, again, trying to write a book about normal Iraqis, putting them back as main characters in their modern history, instead of telling Iraq's history through the eyes of, of U.S. military generals or um, U.S. Uh, officers of any sort, um, I wanted to make the Iraqis the main characters because they're doing some amazing things. Southern City, of course, is an incredibly large, diverse uh, uh, population, and uh, they they make up the bread and butter of, of Baghdad's workforce. It's only proper that they get um, a time to shine, and they've done some amazing things behind the scenes. Tell our viewers and listeners a little bit about the uh, Shia family that is the, uh, the focus of your story. and. Were you able to meet the family? Yeah, so the my book, The Spy Master of Baghdad, began as a front page story for the New York Times. And like I said, through this, the, this what I thought was a straightforward question um, that all journalists should have been asking is how did Baghdad become safe? I got to know about this classified operation that had been underway for 18 months. And the reason why I I I um I think I broke through the icy reserve of the spy master to tell um, to tell his story and to tell the story of the Sudani family was because uh, I mean I'd like to think that I'm very persuasive and probably I am but of course every um, every government official always has a reason for for dishing or leaking to a journalist and in this case Abu Ali al Basri had lost a man behind uh, enemy lines, and he wanted to help the family um, of that fallen officer both get the benefits that they deserved, but also be able to tell the nation and tell the world about this um, this act of bravery. And of course, classification kept him from being able to do that publicly. And so he worked with me behind the scenes in, in order to write my first uh, story for the New York Times. And through that story, um, very inadvertently, well, I. I Everything I wrote in there was true. Um, Captain Harlow Sudani was the undercover officer, um, and he did um, some extraordinary things. He also did some kind of stupid things, like many undercover officers through history probably have done. But um, in large part, he, um, I, I, 
I got to know him, uh, his family, his brother, um, his parents, uh, his wife, the whole extended Sudani family. And because of the way in which the original story in the New York Times was so well received, um, I had inadvertently created a modern day Iraqi hero. Over you know 15 years or so, the Iraqis were used to hearing stories about themselves that involved corruption and bloodshed and torture and all of the bad things. But here um, I was able to tell a story about someone who had worked for um, self-sacrificed and, and, and worked for the good of his nation. So the Sudani family, after that story was published, uh, they, they had basically adopted me as one of their own. And in the great tradition of Iraqi and Arab hospitality, um, I was always a welcome guest. And so I ended up spending months with, um, with the Sudanis, um, again, all levels of the family and uh, uh, being a woman, I was also very much invited to the more private rooms within the Sudani household, um, had a lot of conversations with his, um, Captain Harley Sudani's mother, with his wife, with all of the sisters and sisters-in-laws. And so part of the, um, I hope, rich and in-depth portrait that I've been able to write about Iraqi family life and um, Iraqi society is built off of a lot of meetings with a lot of different people and getting to know um, getting to know people's innermost thoughts, which is a, it's a very hard thing to do as a journalist, especially I think in the Arab world, that a, a culture where there isn't a society of self-help books or reality TV and Oprah Winfrey shows, people aren't used to talking about their innermost thoughts. But as a journalist, I was um, in the right place at the right time. There was a huge trauma that this family had, had um, experienced and they wanted someone to talk to. And as a foreigner, someone who sort of steps into their world, but also exists outside of the normal cultural mores, I was able to be that person that they could talk to and, 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 and tell this amazing tale. And as I understand it, as a result, uh, they actually got the benefits that they deserved but had long been denied in large part because of your efforts. That's right. Um, you know, anyone who has served in Iraq uh, knows the um, infamous, notorious, historic, bureaucratic uh, red tape, right? And so one of the um, hardships that the Sudani family had experienced, um, first when they finally found out that their son had had died um, and um, some more details about the mission that he was on when he died, they had spent months trying to get the veterans benefits, the martyrs benefits that they should should be due as, as a serving officer um, of the nation of Iraq. But they didn't have a body to show the probate judge in that part of Baghdad. And without a body, without a death certificate, they were being denied all those benefits. And so the, um, the original story in the New York Times, um, when it published. It went viral in the U.S. It went viral across Iraq. And um, all that month of hardship, the months of hardship that they had endured were, were suddenly kind of in a blink of an eye, um, all erased. Um, six hours after um, the story went up on the New York Times website, the prime minister's office called me in Baghdad and said, put us in touch with the Sudani family. We have to show their appreciation. And then within 72 hours of all this happening, um, all the red tape had disappeared um, and death certificates had been written and all the benefits uh, that were due to them were, were going to the Sudani family. 
And of course, that's that's an amazing thing. And those are these are the kind of stories that I think every journalist, um, you know, dreams about being able to tell. Not only is it um, sexy and exciting to talk about um, espionage and successful espionage um, operations, but we actually, I actually changed a family's life. Uh, you know, living in Southern City near the poverty line, every single dinar helps. And to be able for them to have that that financial, I mean, what they were due, right? This financial benefit uh, meant the world to them. Um, and then the esteem that the family had uh, was also extraordinary. You know, they jumped about 23 levels in the socioeconomic and, and cultural, uh, you know, hierarchy inside our city. Um, you know, Captain Harlow Sudani's uh, own daughter um, got to marry um sort of three or four steps up uh, um, on, in that cultural hierarchy because the esteem that the family finally had due to her father's sacrifice. Well, it's an amazing story and uh, congratulations on your success. Uh, are there any other projects in the works? Wow. Well, there's, there's always um, about 10 books. I wish I could write and have the time to write. Um, nonfiction is a time-consuming um, time-consuming endeavor. I also, as this is my first book, um, consider writing a book to be an exquisite form of torture. Um, it's, it's, um, I can't, I mean, every, every night while I was, I was writing, I'd sort of wake up with um, nightmarish thoughts. Um, how can I uh, confirm this detail? Um, what document can I find that can bolster this fact? And, and so, you know, the, the fact checking and the accuracy takes a whole lot of time. However, um, with all of my time spent in, in the wider Middle East, um, we lived a long time in the Gulf and, I have some historic and, and close relationships with with uh, members of the Qatar royal family, and would really like to be able to, um, at some point, write a, a biography of them and their modern nation. Um, all of us goes to bookstores and see reams of, of books written about MBS and Saudi rulers, but um, the Qataris are sort of overdue, I think, for for a little bit of limelight and. Um, and that would be that would be something. I mean, inshallah, that I could turn around in the next two or three years, as COVID permits. Margaret, having spent so many years uh, in Iraq covering uh, the situation in Baghdad, now that you've had a chance to step back a little bit, any thoughts on um, those events? Well, it, just in a in a very personal um, way, I, um, you know, there's. Abu Ali al-Basri, the, the spy master in, in my book, uh, you know, one of the things that made him so extraordinary was the way in which that he survived so much of the bureaucratic struggles that that um, governments in, in Baghdad have gone through since 2005. And um, shortly after my book was published, he was actually ousted as the head of his elite unit known as Asakur, the Falcons. And that has to do a lot with the politics of personality. I mean, part of what I'm writing about in my book is is um, the rebuilding of intelligence services um, in Iraq post-2003. The National Intelligence Service um, that was uh, funded and, um, and um, you know, tentatively rebuilt in large part by the CIA um, had made an enormous amount of blunders early on. And within 
within that, um, the lack of, of effectiveness that the National Intelligence Service um, was showing, um, Abu Ali al-Basri and his unit uh, sort of rose up in, in prominence and in esteem throughout um, the U.S.'s estimation. But uh, that also causes a lot of bad blood. Um, anyone in large bureaucracies will know that, um, that uh, revenge is usually um, uh, served cold. And so Abu, Abu Ali al-Basri was ousted when the now former prime minister of Iraq was, was became prime minister um, after after serving as the head of the National Intelligence Agency um, for several years. So we're now in a time of transition in Iraq again. There's a struggle to to um, to stand up a, a new government. I fully expect that Abu Ali al Basri is going to regain um, his position now since his nemesis is is out of power, and so from uh, you know very, uh, you know, very direct uh, ways, you know, Baghdad, um, Baghdad is Baghdad is Baghdad. Um, it is a very hard task to build any parliamentary democracy, I think, even in the Western world, um, from, from, uh, you know, from, from the UK to, to Israel, um, parliamentary consensus building is quite difficult. Iraq is no different in that sense. But again, I'm not an Arabist. Um, I'm an accidental one, if you can call me that. But I have spent, um, I have spent a lot of time in, in lots of different Arab countries. I covered all of the Arab Spring revolutions. And one thing that I can say about Iraq, which makes me very bullish about Iraq, is that after 2003, the entire perception and the entire relationship among the Iraqi people to their government has changed in fundamental ways. Um, Iraq is a faltering democracy some days, and but in relationship to other Arab countries, is an amazing place. Iraqis actually expect um, a lot of from their elected officials. A Iraqis actually feel like, as individuals, they have the power to bring, you know, to to uh, vote the bums out of office. And that doesn't mean that the institutions um, that serve of them are strong and effective, but it does mean something. And I find it extraordinary uh, from all the Iraqis I talk to, no matter what ethnic group you, you hail from, what religion um, you believe in, and what geographic region you're from. Um, Iraqis have the sensibility that other Arabs don't. And I think that is uh, one of the silver linings of, of what happened back in 2003. The name of the book is The Spy Master of Baghdad. It's a fascinating story, very well told. And I want to thank Margaret Cooker for a great interview. Thank you very much.